song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. I'm David Gibb. And this is how wrestling explains infinitely diverse episode today, Dave. Yeah, I mean, kind of a different look, but I mean, really, in some ways, maybe potentially our best episode ever because um, there's very little of me in it. Oh, come on now, Dave. No, uh, normally, uh, if you're joining us for the first time from Tights and Fights, hi, everybody. Normally, what we do is have Dave and I talk the entire episode and usually when we have guests Dave uh, Dave will join us but uh, this time scheduling reasons we couldn't so we actually just had Dylan who's a good friend of mine and a great friend of the show we actually wrote uh, co-wrote the theme song for this show and the show you're about to hear about in between the two segments Uh, so we had him who's an expert he's an expert on Star Trek in general, which is, of course, what this episode is about. He ran DeadShirt.net, and he had a column called Infinite Diversity. Uh, Just an all-around great guy and a real, honest-to-God expert in Star Trek. So we were excited to have him. But before we get into that, we wanted to, uh, again, for the new listeners, explain why we picked the Intercontinental Championship Last week for our regular and our essential viewing episodes, because uh, normally what we do is we take a topic from wrestling, we break it down as much as we can, spin it around, blend it, all that stuff. And then we come back the next week and we kind of connect that topic to a topic in pop, a topic in pop culture. Uh, for instance, we did Sensational Sherry and then A Fish Called Wanda, which is a personal favorite episode of mine if you haven't checked it out. Uh, and this week we did the Intercontinental Championship to Star Trek. And I think some people might be a little confused. Uh, with the Intercontinental Championship, what I found for me is that the Intercontinental Championship is kind of a nerd's championship and i mean that in the nicest possible way it is for people who aren't just regular not just for people who know wrestling is scripted or predetermined however you want to put it but for people who love that and love the performance aspect of that it is what what was called and we talked about this last week the workers title and i think that for me when i think of actual nerds or and i mean that in the, again the nicest way possible i'm thinking of people who like star trek because there's this intelligence to the show that requires you to actually understand what they're doing. And and I think the same way that you need to know wrestling really well to appreciate some of the great performers in the history of wrestling, and the Icy Belt was a prism through which they could be viewed. Yeah, definitely. I think that's a a good way of putting it. I mean, Star Trek was really one of the first times in kind of the TV era that people who, like, self-identified as nerds were, like, really validated on TV. And, like, I mean, at the time, the the writing staff, the first like couple of, of seasons on the original TV show was just like a murderer's row of some of the greatest science fiction writers of the age. So it was that that idea of like kind of super serving a certain very dedicated, very willing and passionate audience. And I think you're right. Like when you talk about those all time legacy intercontinental champions, as we did last week, whether, you know, it's like Kurt Hennig or or Bret Hart, or even like William Regal, someone a little later down the line. But those are all people who just sort of really embedded themselves in the consciousness of the hardcore fans and really represented something that's special about wrestling to the people who like it most. Yeah, and uh, as as you may know from listening to the episode, I am not a big science fiction fan. But I even find, and I think it's the same way for people who uh, don't really love like more technical wrestling it is a show they put on a show that is good enough for people like me like uh, luddites like me to enjoy without getting sucked in too much you don't get the full appreciation but they're still high quality shows but they really do cater to a specific audience uh, i would 
Dylan and I are going to talk about it in a couple minutes. Uh, there's the episode. Most of the episodes have to do with like deep philosophical questions. So even if you're not a philosophy major, you can understand it, but you don't really get to appreciate it on the level that you would say if you had taken a class and even a class in philosophy. It's not like really advanced stuff, but it's it's the kind of things that you don't know don't know unless you know, and then you get everything. And it really like for instance. Um, uh, there's an episode with Q where Picard starts using Shakespeare at Q as a counter to Q. And if you understand that, for instance, uh, Patrick Stewart is a great Shakespearean actor, it adds a little bit to the show. It really feels like the Intercontinental Championship is for people who believe themselves, especially now, to be on the inside. It is a thing, it has reached this metafictional idea of being more than a title. It is a designation. And I I think being on a Star Trek is like being Star Trek has that kind of similar designation of you understand when they're there's a new Star Trek show, for instance, Discovery, that they're kind of speaking to the history of the show while also trying to create a new future. Yeah, if you look back last week at that first IC uh, episode, we talked about how, you know, that title has had specific kind of eras and specific different sliding scale meanings and values and, and positions on the card at various times. But it's kind of always meant something within the context of the WWF. It's always kind of been important to the stories in some form or fashion. And it is, other than some slight breaks in the title lineage, which we talk about. I mean, it's basically, you know, a continuous line back to 1979 and much the same way that even the newest Star Trek is, you know, kind of just a, a, a reach back to, to when the original series came around, came out. Yeah, and I, I think that was the other thing that really set it off for me in my head was that much like the Star Trek where you have people who like The Next Generation and Voyager and Deep Space Nine, I don't think anybody likes Enterprise <laughs> based on my conversation with Dylan, but even Discovery now you have each generation has its fans in part because that's when they grew up, but also because they came around to it when they were older and were like, oh shit, this is the best. Like I, I grew up, I was old enough to be a wrestling fan in the... Uh, I am old enough to be 10, basically, when the Attitude Era started, but that's not my era. The era, and it was when I was younger, but I didn't realize how much better it was to me personally until I went back to the new generation. I was like, oh, this is this is my, my shit. It wasn't just that I grew up with it. It was that I went back, but I think there's a lot of people who grow up with a certain Star Trek and then go back and go, oh, actually, I like the original series uh, more. I, I know we have friends from college, mutual friends from college, who are huge original series fans who grew up during the heat of the new generation, uh, the next generation. It's not that they don't like the next generation, it's that that speaks to them in a certain way. And I think you definitely see that with the ICU title. What's great about it is that it allows you to pick different people from the different eras, not just pick an era and go, I like this era, but I like the icy title reign of Jeff Jarrett, not just I like the new generation. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I think the Intercontinental title, it's like, you know, the the the, 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 the meanest and most degrading thing that you can say about a wrestling title is that it's just a prop, right? But I think the Intercontinental title at every point in its history has been like a, a lot more than a prop, that even though it's meant different things, at different times, like I said before, uh, it, it, it's always meant something 
and that if you kind of stepped into WWE at any point in time, like if I think back to the Super Bowl episode when we talked to Mark Masick about how he kind of recently rediscovered wrestling after many, many years away from it, it had to be like, okay, well, like one of the questions would be, who's the intercontinental champion now? It's like a touchstone. It's like, even if I liked Star Trek The Next Generation when I was growing up and I haven't watched any of the subsequent stuff, if I hear there's a new season, I'm like, oh, who's the captain? Mm-hmm. Or, oh, are the Borg in this one? Or whatever. Like, I have some touchstones that I immediately, you know, can, can, can go to that are both kind of comforting and that help me grow in familiarity with the new one much quicker. And I think the IC title is one of those touchstones for the WWE. Yeah, uh, I don't think I could have said it better myself. Uh, so... I think at this point we can kick it to the interview with Dylan and I, but first you are going to hear the premiere of Dylan's song for the pod beyond. And Dave's going to tell you a little bit about it. So first comes sharpshooter and then comes the premiere announcement for the pod beyond. And then you were going to hear Dylan and I start talking and, and then Dave and I will be back in about an hour. Uh, so we'll see you when we see you. Enjoy. Hi everyone, it's your pal Dave. Uh, not any infringing or potentially confusing characters. Uh, with a really exciting promotional message from How Wrestling Explains. The long-rumored Pod Beyond is about to launch at patreon.com slash hweetw. In this exciting new show, Nick and I will jump our minecart onto a parallel rail like Indiana Jones, Donkey Kong, or Scrooge McDuck before us to explore the world of Jim Crockett promotions in 1985 every Saturday night at that magic 6.05 time slot. We'll track the growth of the territory from its takeover of the NWA mantle up through some of its most iconic moments as the four horsemen form to antagonize Dusty Rhodes and the American Dream books head-to-head against McMahon and Patterson, creating some of the most well-regarded television in the history of the wrestling business. If you love our essential viewing episodes, this is really the show for you. We'll be tearing each episode of Classic Crockett TV to shreds and building it back together again, dissecting matches with real-life New York Wrestling Connection wrestler J.T. Kaysen, studying Dusty's booking at both his best and his poochiest, and having a whole ton of our special brand of thinky wrestling fun along the way. To get the pod beyond, all you need to do is sign up at patreon.com hwetw at the $2 monthly tier before April 6th when the show launches. I mean, obviously doing more than $2 is fine too, just saying. We're not going to sit back and ask you just to give us money like I usually do, though. We're proud to announce that the first episode of The Pod Beyond will drop on our main free feed for everyone to check out on April 3rd, which will be the same day the Booker T episode drops. In that episode, we'll introduce the hip new format of The Pod Beyond, build some context to bring everybody up to speed on where and when we're jumping in the water, and give you a preview of the kind of juice you can expect from the hottest new premium podcast in wrestling today, The Pod Beyond. At only... Two dollars! You'd be better off dead than miss the pod beyond. Seriously though, you should check it out. Think about it.
Dylan Roth from the band The Hell Yeah Babies. Uh, I'm also the writer of Gotham City Book Club, and for a long time, I was editor and publisher of Deadshirt.net, where I wrote a column about Star Trek called Infinite Diversity. And that is why we have you on this week. Um, it's always nice to talk to you. Uh, Dylan and I used to work together, uh, and he's been a great friend for the show and a great friend of mine for the past couple of years. So, um, yeah, Star Trek. There's a lot um, of stuff that I did not realize, uh, having watched a couple of episodes now. Uh, previously, I had watched one episode, the Ma- the Matter of a Man or something like that for Measure of a Man. Measure of a Man for. Uh, Let's not talk about work. One of my other podcasts. We were talking before the show about there's actually a uh, a crossover between wrestling <laughs> and and SmackDown, right? Uh, or I should say Star Trek and SmackDown. When uh when SmackDown uh came to UPN, Star Trek Voyager was uh was on its run. This was February of 2000 when the episode aired. They created an episode in which the character Seven of Nine would end up in like a, a sort of fighting tournament and her opponent was <laughs> the rock was Dwayne Johnson in his second ever acting credit. And the whole episode was just specifically, Hey, how do we try to prom- cross promote our two shows that are both very popular with, as far as we can tell, like completely separate demographics. Um, I've ever actually watched the show, the episode, cause I'm not, um, if I if I had uh, if I had thought about it more coming to do this uh, this episode with you, I would I would have given it a watch. But I'm not the biggest Voyager fan, <laughs> so and I I sometimes like to save little chunks of Trek that I haven't watched to watch for the first time down the line. Uh, so at some point, I watched the episode. It is in season six of Voyager. If anybody wants to look that up, uh, should be able to get that on the CBS streaming app, right? Yeah, it'll be on CBS All Access, Netflix, or Hulu. Uh, and you can look up, I don't know how to say it right, because I haven't seen the episode, Sunkatsi, I think, is what it's called, T-S-U-N-K-A-T-S-E. And you get to see Jerry Ryan as uh, Seven of Nine fight The Rock, who has very little lines but does all his own stunts, and he doesn't, um, he has a little little piece of alien makeup on his on his eyebrows, but he also does do the people's eyebrow. <laughs> and uh, I think The Rock Bottom. Oh, yeah, of course. They have to do their move. Otherwise, Absolutely. you wouldn't know who they are. Um, it's funny, though, that you say that there are two different fandoms, essentially. But I, I think there's a lot of similarities. And one of them is that, like, they're important to the people that love it in a way that transcends the thing itself. Yeah, wrestling and Star Trek are both – they're both entities that inspire, like, a religious fervor in, in their fans and their viewership. And they're both – in completely different ways, mind you, like extremely silly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like Star Trek is—I do think it is a show that that intellectuals enjoy, and we love to have long conversations about about what the stories mean, and they're meant to mean something, right? Star Trek is a show that, at its best, is supposed to make you think about a contemporary issue in uh in a different way by couching your by couching your contemporary problem in science fiction, maybe separating you from your normal point of view, you're meant to reanalyze the situation, come at it with a new point of view, and hopefully gain some wisdom out of it. Yeah, they're very specifically structured to use that as the primary storytelling 
method, I guess you, I wouldn't call it a device, but a method that they're there to frame problems in ways that are devoid of a lot of the more material ideas behind them. If that makes sense, like they're, they're structured to be arguments about like the core of the ideas about what it means to be human and stuff like that. It just in the uh, five or so episodes that I've watched in full, it seems to be a recurring theme. Obviously it's like in comically small sample size, but like I haven't speak, uh, haven't spoken to you about it. It seems like I'm not far off from the general idea of like that as the core storytelling thing and the way that the ring is the like the matches in the ring are the store the core storytelling aspect of it where it's this good versus evil or blank versus a versus b and it's told through this physical story about the values that those things project yeah it's it's you personify you personify certain points of view or certain ideas in often a very caricature type way uh which is very wrestling and you're meant to be inspired uh, by the characters to better yourself and to think more about who you are uh, through Star Trek. And I don't think that's an idea that's completely independent of professional wrestling. I think that the greatest wrestling heroes are the ones who are aspirational figures, yes, but also ones that make you think about the things you like about yourself as opposed to just being like, oh my God, this guy can lift a car. It's like, oh, this guy can confront hardship and can, through the channeling the belief of the audience, accomplish great things through belief in oneself and the the desire to improve oneself and to, and to reach for something. Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. That is one of the core tenets of what makes a baby face work in wrestling is that that aspirational perspective about what's possible, which is the foundation of uh, one of the other things that I think it has in common, along with a slump from about 2001 to 2009. The Rootless Aggression era was not kind to Star Trek either. You can get into that in more detail if you'd like. <laughs> well, I guess, yeah, that is a question, because I think they lose the thread a little bit about what made the show work at least for wrestling i can say i didn't watch star trek at this time but what for you i mean we were, were joking a little bit obviously but like what for you made it ch- a change from something like the next generation and other things that came before it well all right so if you were going to just say wwe is very uh loud very vocal about when its peak is in the modern era right they really they're constantly thinking about the attitude era and that's what would you say, like nineteen ninety six to two thousand is the peak yeah. of that. When did it? When yeah. Did oh, two thousand one, I guess, because right. when Austin turns on the Rock to join McMahon, that's the end of that's the, the end of era. that. And the screw job is kind of the official beginning of the Attitude Era, and that's ninety seven. Yeah. All right. So in nineteen ninety six, Star Trek was stupid big. Um, mm-hmm. They're making movies that were like at the level they were doing when William Shatner was in charge. Oh, not in charge, well, not but in charge. But yeah, um, yeah, when he was in charge, things went since sour. But we can. Um, well, I mean, he was Captain no, when James he was the Kirk. Yes. So, because um, the thing about the thing about Star Trek is it was not a respectable thing at its origins either. Like professional wrestling 
you you know you go back and it has it, it had its following, but it's not really taken seriously. Star Trek was originally a TV show that failed. It flopped. It it barely survived cancellation after two seasons, but but was brought back by the first successful letter writing campaign to a television network. Uh, got one last season that wasn't very good, and then got canceled. It was three years, and it it really it got its second life in syndication. But then through syndication and then some hit movies in the eighties. It got its first boom, which I would compare to sort of the golden age in 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 WWF when you had and in WCW like the Hulkamania era. Yeah, your Hulkamania era era. That's when you have you know uh, the Wrath of Khan and Voyage Home, two really big blockbuster movies for Star Trek, really bringing things into the public consciousness. Then in '87, they launched the Next Generation, which has a couple weak years, but then becomes a bigger sensation in its day uh, than Star Trek was in the original series when it came out because Star Trek was not a huge hit at the time and there were only three TV channels and it still wasn't really like a huge show, right? Next Generation was syndicated. Uh, it was, it didn't have a network behind it. It had a studio, it had Paramount and yet it still managed to become like a really big hit. It broke into the public consciousness in a way that Star Trek hadn't since like the Wrath of Khan in 1982. So, um, when the next generation ended in 1994, they started making motion pictures, but they had also at this point, they were spinning off into new shows. And in 96, you had deep space nine and syndication. You had Voyager on UPN, uh, the now defunct UPN. This was their flagship show. And then you had Star Trek first contact, a movie from the next generation crew. That was a, a big, a big hit, big box office and critical hit in November of that year. So 1996, there were two hit shows, a hit movie, tons of merchandise, video games, um, lot like the novels have always been big, but like it was, it was a multimedia sensation, like on the scale that, um, that star Wars re began to reattain in 97 when the special editions came out. Like it was the only time it was really, people talk about the star Trek versus star Wars debate. Um, Commercially, they were never comparable, except for maybe in 1996. <laughs> they were. Um, this was when uh, kids had the toys, and uh, and 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 adults had the books, and everyone was watching the shows. Um, and it's about as big as Star Trek really ever got, and that's not far off time wise from when WWF became like a hit show that people who were not just wrestling nerds were watching just like star trek became a hit thing that not just sci-fi people were watching right uh and i think it's partially uh the function of brands at the end of the monoculture because like it's these things that have been building for year after year after year so these these there's this there's this generational fandom forum that I think, like we talked about in Let's Not Talk About Work, your parents watched it with you, right? Uh, correct? I didn't, didn't forget. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so like it, you had that cachet of just like, oh, well, we should all watch this because this is something I watched or I'm interested in because I like science. You know what I'm saying? Like there's that established brand of like, oh, I guess we can trust this. And I think the same thing kind of happened there are other reasons why the WWF became popular and involving like its relationship with WCW and stuff like that. But I think that it's these, this like culmination of the monoculture right before it breaks in like the early two thousands, which is, I guess where the slums come for both. Do you think 
that breaking up of the monoculture was an effect? Or do you think that this idea spread itself too thin? Because I think that's also the other issue with the the ruthless aggression era not being that great, is they had completely diluted the idea of what professional wrestling was to this like weird, watery, like it was more reality show than wrestling. And I did not that they did that on Star Trek, but did it become a different kind? Did the shows they had during this era become a different kind of show? I would say the problem with Star Trek during the time that it got worse, which was uh, Voyager ended in 2001. Now I'm not particularly fond of Voyager on the scale of Star Trek shows, but um, there's a reason why people still really love it. It's um, I think it's a very middling show. When I think about Voyager, I think that there are, it never gets as bad as the show that came after it. And it was never as good as the shows that came before. Uh, but when Voyager ended, uh, they immediately launched another show called Enterprise. And Enterprise was a prequel, but it was made by all the same people, basically, who had worked on Voyager. And the people who worked on Voyager were mostly the same people who had worked on The Next Generation. So you had this same creative team, you know, with some people swapped in and out as people retired, started their own shows, yada, yada. Ba- making what was supposed to be a new show that felt in every way exactly like the shows that you've just seen. And... Enterprise did not take off. It was not, a, it was, it never, it never really, uh, it never became a show that anybody other than Star Trek fans were watching. And a lot of Star Trek fans, I think, were watching it out of a sense of obligation. Like, if I stop watching this show, they'll stop making Star Trek. That's um, more or less why I wasn't watching. That's why, more or less why I was watching when I was watching it. But it's, it's funny that just as, just as WWF, WWE, had sort of stretched itself too far, you know, the initial brand split, initial brand split after the WCW buy and um and kind of kind of blew it at their time of their like potentially their greatest triumph. Uh Star mm-hmm. Trek Yeah, oh, absolutely. Star Trek used up its goodwill really fast. Like the last few years of Voyager um were you know, weren't weren't terribly good. Uh, Deep Space Nine suffered an unfortunate death out of being a syndicated show at the death of original syndicated programming. Like, the birth of WB and UPN was basically the end of Deep Space Nine because fewer and fewer networks were going to give that show a good time slot. Um, there were so there's you know you had you had so much more to watch even without a cable box that that was just not going to make it. But Enterprise was it felt like a knockoff of Star Trek from the people who made Star Trek. And that's, and, you know, I know that the timing of it is sort is, is basically a coincidence, but when, when Enterprise was canceled very justly, although it was really kind of starting to find its footing in, in 2005, that's a cutoff that I know a lot of people stopped watching WWE and they wouldn't come back in until, like the summer of punk was was that 2009 or 2011 i know the pipe bomb was 2011 i think that was like the first wave of people coming back but people really didn't start to come back until brock lesnar i think that's when it got started to get that like oh shit like okay and i i think it's similar in in a weird way to like star trek coming back up when the movies came out you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Where it's just like, oh, they have actual stars. Like, oh shit, this is like a real movie. 2019 Star Trek got a got a rebirth that it really desperately needed in 2009, where you had almost a completely fresh group of people working on it. Um, 
you had J.J. Abrams directing, you had um, Alex Kurtzman and Roberto Orsi writing the films, and you had Damon Lindelof involved, and it was like, it was it was fresh blood, but it also was like a nostalgia thing because they were bringing back characters from the original series. But they there was a, a key, clear moment where people were like, oh, I'm interested in Star Trek again. And that's the pipe bomb promo, basically. Yeah. It was, hey, yeah, uh, what we've been doing is not working. And now we're going to do something else. Um, to me, I, I kind of do feel like... Um, the pipe bomb is the soft is that is like the closest that WWE got to like a soft reboot since a hundred. Yeah. That's a great way to put it. Yeah. yeah. Like since McMahon's uh, King of the Hill promo, right. That was, it was we're And in both cases, it involved drawing back the curtain, right? It was, we're going to do something new. Now we get that. You didn't like what was there before. Um, and, uh, it's sort of, a, in, a, in a backwards way, the, um, the collapse of the, the the sort of great considered great era of of WWF coming out of the acquisition of a company, the rebirth of Star Trek came out of a split. When Viacom was split back into Paramount Pictures and CBS Studios Television, uh, the rights got divided up. So now Paramount owned all the film rights, and they could make movies, and they could reference stuff from the previous media, but going forward, they're separate. And CBS got the shows back, and they could make TV shows, but they were only allowed to debut a new TV show six months to the day after the third Paramount movie came out. Uh, and we didn't know this until way later. We're like, why won't they make another Star Trek show? Star Trek's really big again. Why won't they do it? And everyone's really tight-lipped, and we didn't know why it wouldn't happen. And in an interview with executive producer of Star Trek Discovery, Brian Fuller, in TV Guide, uh, I want to say um, a couple weeks before the show, Star Trek Discovery, the new show on CBS All Access, debuted in 2007, 2018, January 2018. Uh, he basically let loose on all of this legal stuff that had been tying up the franchise. But 2009 was the point where Star Trek got to kind of get its get its much needed relaunch and now even though cbs is making its entirely separate new line of television shows that legally can't actually reference anything specifically from the new movies they are borrowing from the visual language of the new movies and from the sense of humor of the new movies a lot uh it is it is a fresh start to the tv shows that i think owes a great debt to the work that was done on the films and i think that's at least partially a function of uh as far as I know, please again, correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, it became fans of the product making the product. Is that a fair way to put it? 100%. Um, it's funny that it took a director who did not really give a shit about Star Trek. He wanted to make a Star Wars movie. Funny mm -hmm. that he then got to make what will now be two Star Wars movies. Um taking you needed to have somebody at the top of this who wasn't going to who wasn't going to consider anything feel the pressure yeah uh for him this was just another movie to make the writers were longtime crazy expert obsessive star trek fans simon pegg was he one of the writers, uh, simon pegg it? actually didn't do any writing oh, for them until okay. the third movie which is great Star Trek okay. Beyond's a really good one but the writers on the first two of the reboot films were alex kurtzman roberto orsi um 
Alex Kurtzman is actually now running the TV shows. He is the Kevin Feige of the CBS Star Trek television universe. So he's sort of going to be guiding all of that through. Roberto Orsi uh, left the franchise after the uh, poor reception to Star Trek Into Darkness, where he put a lot of his 9-11 truther shit into the plot. <laughs> uh, this, is, uh, this is definitely a 9-11 was an inside job movie. Which is interesting. <laughs> so, <laughs> now I have to watch it. I, I've I, never seen People hate Into Darkness for very good reasons. Uh, there are things about it that I think are kind of fun and good. It's a bad movie, but I kind of like it. Um, and gosh, can we say that a lot about pro wrestling? Sometimes <laughs> pro wrestling is very bad, and we like it anyway. But, but yeah, I mean, nowadays you have you kind of have a problem in... Well, you tell me. I, I think that one of the criticisms that people have of modern-day WWE is that Vince McMahon likes to bring in all of these sitcom and soap opera writers who actually aren't really familiar with professional wrestling and have them try to make the product into this TV show that Vince McMahon wants it to be. He wants it to be like Game of Thrones. He wants it to be like The Simpsons. He wants it to be like a regular television show. Uh, and yet somehow we end up with the exact same stuff over and over again. I think that when I say that fans are doing it, I do think fans are writing more, but I think the actual performers and and less so WWE perhaps than wrestling in general. Like I think a lot of people would argue that now is one of the best times to be a wrestling fan. There's just so much like think about, but let's look at SmackDown. SmackDown is a show that is clearly written by people who grew up watching NWA. Like it's an NWA show. It's structured in this, very direct way as a as the goal is to have people come out explain why they're there explain their goals and try to accomplish their goals while other people get in their way of those goals that's basically the entire show and they have a lot of wrestling and they have a very deep roster but if you look at all of the people in on at the major leagues let's say all of almost all of them to a person outside of like Alexa Bliss and I no, actually, I'm not going to say that because, uh, but they grew up as fans. They grew up with this idea of like what they wanted if they ever were in a wrestling, like in the WWE, what they would want to do when they were there. And I think that you also do see it with the NXT, for instance, with Triple H. Triple H is a guy who grew up as a wrestling fan and wanted to be a wrestling fan his entire life. So when, it, when you look at, again, that is, a, and obviously Dusty had a lot to do with that, but that is a very NWA kind of show. It's a very direct, it's not sports entertainment. That shit's professional wrestling. It's NXT is absolutely like, that more than any of the WWE products does feel like this is a wrestling show made by people who who treasure professional wrestling. And I, I'm, I am... I'm not watching a lot of the weekly product lately. I, I can't dedicate the time to watch weekly wrestling. There is this crazy amount of top level, like a first run shows that you kind of need to watch to get everything that's going on. Like I was watching 205 Live with a, another friend of the show, Andy Miller, and I didn't know who some of the people were, which has not happened to me in a generation of wrestlers. I've never heard of that guy. Who the fuck is that? <laughs> and it was just like some guy and Andy was like, oh yeah, he's a really good baby face. And I'm like, okay, sounds good. I guess we'll see him someday. Um, but yeah, it's this this like smorgasbord of talent. And But I am, um, do you ever watch an episode of Star Trek, uh, like a, a 
a version of Star Trek and you're just like, I don't understand any of the rules or any of who any of these people are. I mean, like I'm educated enough in, in, in Trek that there's a, there's not a lot, even though there are episodes of Voyager that I've never seen. Um, there's not a lot that can surprise me just from the amount of reading and, and, and various osmosis to Star Trek fandom that I've picked up. What does kind of uh, blow my mind, though, is anytime I try to dip my toe into the waters of the Orville, uh, because we're sort of in the middle of uh, we're sort of in the middle of the Thursday Night Wars right now. Um, <laughs> for those of you who don't know, um, there are kind of sort of two competing Star Trek shows running against each other right now. <laughs> There's Star Trek Discovery, which is the official new Star Trek show. And it's you know it's made by CBS Studios and it can use the characters and uh, and all of the the world that exists from the last fifty years of Star Trek. And I think that show's real good, particularly this season has been really fantastic. And then there's Seth MacFarlane's fan fiction, <laughs> and and that's what it is. He has a show on Fox that used to air on two different days of the week. They used to be the Orville was on Tuesdays and Discovery was on Sundays. And now they both air on Thursday nights. Granted, one of them's on regular TV and one of them's on a streaming service. So yeah, it posts at 9.30 Eastern on Thursdays, but you can watch it whenever you want. But uh, it's this, it's sort of like they, they want to like make you make a choice, like which one mm-hmm. you're going to watch first, huh? Because they, they air at the same time. Uh, and I do know a lot of people who watch both, but by virtue of being on broadcast television, the Orville has a much larger audience than Star Trek Discovery. Uh, for my money, that show is very bad. <laughs> uh I, I I will have to admit that I haven't watched any of season two. So for all I know, it's improved greatly. But the Orville is a show created by a lot of the individuals who worked on Star Trek Next Generation and Star Trek Voyager and Star Trek Enterprise. Um, a lot of that same crew, same a lot of the directors and some of the same sort of guest actors and on one of the same head writers. But every script is basically what it feels like is, and this may actually be the fact of what matter, but like that Seth MacFarlane had a big binder full of next generation spec scripts that he didn't get to make because the show was over and there wasn't a Star Trek show for him to pitch them to. So he made his own Star Trek show, but because nobody's going to green light a drama with Seth MacFarlane playing the captain of a starship they have to call it a comedy, and he has to put jokes into it. <laughs> it's not a comedy, because comedy comes from situations being funny. <laughs> it's not a comedy. It's a drama where there are jokes in it, but it's not good drama, and it's not good comedy. It's kind of good science fiction, because it follows the Star Trek tradition of here's a dilemma that we want you to consider from your life. Here's how we're going to recontextualize it for you. But it's so married to old Star Trek from the 1990s that it is falling into all of the same sort of traps of well-meaning neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. And it hasn't grown. It's like, what if you just had another Star Trek show made that was exactly like the old Star Trek, but you're already tired of that show and it's not as good. And for some reason, there's a lot of dick jokes. <laughs> uh, for some um, reason, you just told me Seth MacFarlane wrote it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then you have Star Trek Discovery, which is in the canon, and it's official, and it'll always count in a way that the Orville doesn't officially count. But it is trying new stuff. It is trying to evolve and grow. And so in a sense, 
you have your Raw and your SmackDown. Um, because, um, or I guess the analogy is really, you know, it should be Raw and Nitro, right? Yeah. Where we're at, at the point in the Monday Night Wars when WWF was at its lowest. Their problem was they were still doing the tired old shit that fans had gotten tired of where like, oh, well, this guy's a hockey player by by day, even though many hockey games are played by night. And tonight he's also going to be wrestling for you. And here's a dentist and here's yada yada. Um, and WCW is like, well, hey, let's take the artifice of wrestling and let's do something new with it. Let's have the NWO let's let's use people's real names let's let's experiment and let's try to give you something that you haven't seen before the difference is that the promotion of record the one that was the institution at that point in time was wwf and the scrappy underdogs were doing the new thing in this case it's the institution that's trying to do something new and it's the crap it's the scrappy underdogs although again they're on real tv so they're not really the underdogs who are giving you the tired bullshit you mentioned the neoliberalism, and I think that's an important idea because the function of these and the reason I think they have much so much staying power and why someone who makes his money the way that Seth MacFarlane does would have like a deep seated need to try to like play act being some sort of moral arbiter. Like I can get all of those things. Do you know what I'm saying? But I feel like, do you feel as though because of the ways in which our understanding of the effects on philosophical, that philosophical arguments, quote unquote, have on people's actual lives, that the, the core concept of this as a morality play doesn't necessarily work anymore. Does that make sense? Do you, you understand where I'm coming from? Where like, yeah, we're talking about all this theoretical shit, but like people are actually dying. Like maybe we should, I don't know try to save people instead of like waxing philosophical about it. Not that they don't do that on Star Trek, but like, is that kind of what you're saying or are you saying something else? Well, though, I think it's sometimes a little more subtle things like that. Like um, Star Trek in the nineties and I haven't really demonstrated uh, being much better about this in, in the present day either. Um, really constantly conflates gender and sexuality. Like they really can't seem to fathom the idea of these being two separate things. Mm-hmm. Um so anytime they're trying to do an episode about like if they did an, an allegory about um, if it did an allegory about um, homosexuality, they would do it by fucking with gender. And if they did a story about gender, they'd do it with fucking with sexuality. They're trying to explore something without actually exploring it. They're just saying they're lampshading it almost is essentially the the argument and. They're not actually addressing it, which I can say from watching a thousand hours of Family Guy that that's a Seth MacFarlane special. Like, I actually really like Seth MacFarlane, but I think he has a tendency to understand his audience too well instead of being the guy that you, like, actually hear talk about stuff in real life. Yeah, it's got to challenge you. And, and part of that, but part of the institutional problem, Star Trek in the 90s was um, was principally almost exclusively there are exceptions the the writer's room is just a bunch of straight white guys right um the writer's room there is a writer's room on the orville but the entire first season was credited to seth MacFarlane. this is this is his voice this is he is vince mcmahon in this scenario Mm -hmm. there may or be other creative voices in the room but this is his show and it's his philosophy right 
Discovery, I will say, at least has made a serious effort to diversify every level of the cast crew, up in front of the camera, behind the camera, the writer's room, the director's being chosen, and very visibly in the cast. This is a show that actually embraces infinite diversity and infinite combinations the way that Star Trek has said that it was supposed to do since 1966. Um, Huge leap forward in that respect. And it, it starts to show in the way that certain dilemmas are looked at. You're not always looking at it from the lens of what, like, the shorthand, of, however reductive this is, of mainstream American culture, right? Which really just means middle-class white people, right? Mm-hmm. So the Orville is still stuck there. And much in the way that WWE will never evolve philosophically as long as Vince McMahon is the guy with the final say-so. It's it's like we can have a character who says pretty reasonable things about capitalism and about the and about the environment, but he's got to be like textually the villain, right? I think actually Kofi is another example because they talked about it on on SmackDown. They they more they or less call out Vince McMahon for being racist in that promo. So the, for context for your listeners, or. Or insti- the institution, yeah, institutionally speaking, the WWE, because it is a extension of Vince McMahon's will, it, they are essentially arguing that he may not be racist, but again, it's the Seth MacFarlane thing of knowing your audience so well that you refuse to accept the idea of a black man being able to be champion. And I think that they did an actual good job of addressing that because they didn't address it directly and make it a kind of argument. They did the morality play thing and it felt like that. It felt like a real conversation about something in a way that wrestling doesn't usually get to. You were really sitting there like, are they, are they going to go there? And they didn't quite, but there's still time. And I think that guys like Xavier Woods and Big E and Kofi Kingston are, in particular, not just because they're black guys, but because they're they've ex- they've succeeded in spite of all of the op- those kind of obstacles put in their way to address this in a meaningful way for the WWE audience. They're not like Kofi said; he's not looking for a. I mean, yeah. that was the most coded shit I've ever heard. But they make an argument that like you deciding who quote unquote deserves and who's earned is the problem. You being the arbiter for who is worthy of a title shot or a title run is a problem because you only come from your own perspective and you don't look at the, uh, the reasons for opportunity to give opportunities to people you might not give opportunities to. That's basically what they were discussing. Again, they weren't saying you're doing this piece. Kofi's black and you need to understand that black people are human beings and should be treated as such and not like a separate section of human beings that have different connotations for like how they should be, whether or not they can be champion, like they're people. But they didn't say it in the way that I think Star Trek does well when it's working. Like, I actually really liked the the episode um, where Riker gets the power of the Q. Like, I thought that was an actual interesting way to discuss the role that infinite power has in the Star Trek universe. All right. In Hyden Q, you have... Yeah, this is for context for, for those of you listening who haven't devoured six, seven hundred hours of Star Trek. This is a season one episode of The Next Generation in which Q, an omnipotent being, he's um, he can he can do anything. He sort of knows everything, but he's also like he's Mr. Mixus Spitlick, you know, like you can fool him. 
Um, he's basically that Superman villain, right? Um, he's a very juvenile god. And his favorite thing to do is to fuck with Captain Picard. Because Picard is stoic and principled and just always kind of put together. And the most fun that Q can have is to try and unravel Picard and kind of frustrate him because he's an imp and this is what he does. Um, in his second appearance, he decides that he can have more fun getting to Picard by going through his right-hand man, Commander Will Riker, first officer of the Enterprise. Riker at this point in time is also a fairly straight-laced character. He grows over time to be kind of the fun one, like the the cool the cool uncle to Picard's stern patriarch. But um, what what Q does to fuck with Picard is give Riker all of Q's powers. So now Riker is a god, but he's still the second in, of, in command of this starship, honor-bound to follow the orders of Picard. With that recap, does that bring you back to the thing you were going to say? Yeah, and I think that that dynamic, the power dynamic between, and I think this is an advantage of Star Trek, and I think it's an advantage of WWE, because we just talked about Vince McMahon, and I, we'll talk about Q a little bit more, because Q's a really interesting character to me, uh, and Vince Mc, and by proxy Vince McMahon, that you understand that Riker's not going to do this, not just because he made a promise to Riker, uh, sorry, to Picard the person but also picard the captain of the ship and by extension of picard the entire starfleet itself he made a promise to the people the thing to which he's dedicated his life to not do this like i by having picard be the captain and him being the first officer it you don't have to explain why he's willing to do that for picard do you know what i mean yeah, I, I understand that. And, and one thing that Star Trek and, and wrestling kind of both rely on is a very authority-driven structure. Uh, there's a very clear hierarchy of who's on top of this thing, who's making decisions, who has what job. And wrestling doesn't work yes. if you don't have a degree of respect for the authority, whether it's a benign or malevolent authority that runs the promotion. Because yeah, even or even just the, at the, the most core level, the referee, and on absolutely. the way up, like you have... Yeah, you have to respect the people who are above you in terms of the hierarchy of decision making, if not necessarily like they're more important to the show or whatever in this case, like in a meta sense, the show than you are. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and that's why that's why things that kind of get kind of frustrating in WWE when when people take their feuds to somewhere completely outside of wrestling. Like it was entertaining, but recently when like Samoa Joe went to AJ Styles' house in the story and like intimidated his family, that that's where things start to kind of fall apart for me because you have to respect the art of the, the rules of wrestling to tell a wrestling story. Because if one of the things you're trying to accomplish in your wrestling story, like right now, I absolutely believe that Ronda Rousey wants to tear Becky Lynch in half. I believe that's... <laughs> Whether or not it's real, she's they're doing a great job of making me feel that that's real, right? But if she does it in story out or out of story, that kind of breaks wrestling a little bit. Because mm -hmm. otherwise, why should a match ever fucking end when the bell rings? Why should there ever be a resolution within wrestling if you can just go around wrestling? So in I mean, and in Star Trek, you they're both authority driven they're both authority driven stories where in the end of almost every story the captain has to make a decision everybody has to kind of live with it right they might agree they might not dis they might not agree but the decision has come down we can help this planet we can't we can fire on this thing or we can't or we have to leave so and so behind in order to 
in order to accomplish the mission of the day and tell the message of the day or meet some kind of goal, be it um, triumphant or tragic. And if you start to... You have a problem in a lot of Star Trek episodes where a lot of episodes hinge on a character breaking the rules. And like they're like, this time I can't, I can't follow the captain's orders. I have to do this thing. I have to go and go down to this planet and destroy this machine, or I have to rescue this person from this planet we're not supposed to go down to. And because it's an episodic television show, on every show except for like Discovery and one instance of Voyager, the next week, it's like it never happened. Um, like Brian Pillman can bring a gun to, uh, is it Stone Cold's house? Yeah, no, Stone Cold, yeah, Stone Cold came to Brian Pillman's house and Brian Pillman had a gun to protect his home and his family or something yeah. like that. The Undertaker hung a guy in the ring, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, Stone he Cold. He big <laughs> boss man. Like they, people. Oh yeah, 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 that's what you're talking about. Because he, yeah. cru- sorry, he crucified. He cru- well, yeah, <laughs> like people, people, like when you go that far in professional wrestling, and I can kind of, I can kind of get, think it's, you get away with it a little bit in Lucha Underground because there's sort of a mystical element that's built into it and it's all big soap opera. The tone is different. Well, they appreciate the physics of, and that's something I, I think we've talked about the physics of the world they respect and then they play with the rules of the world which is why like for space you understand it's simple but you understand why they're almost always in the and you know there are obviously episodes where they go to different planets and stuff like that but like most of the show is shot at different sets on the enterprise and it's like because they're not going to go outside because it's fucking space space. yeah (laughs) Uh, there's, there's, like in wrestling in Star Trek, you have a certain set of rules that have been established forever that are kind of completely arbitrary, right? They're just the rules of your world, and this is true of many science fiction or fantasy worlds. Like you have to be able to decide where the limits are, um, because the stakes in these stories are different than the stakes in real life. Uh, it's not like your normal drama, because um, someone gets shot that might mean something different from somebody getting shot in real life, because you're not using bullets, they're using beams, and if, um, you have different sources of fuel, and you have different social rules, and you have to be willing to completely buy into those rules, even though they're completely made up for plot convenience purposes, right? That's wrestling. There's no reason why the figure four leg lock should work and give one person pain one way, and then you turn it over, and it makes the other person hurt. It doesn't it doesn't make sense. It does, but you you have to buy into it. Otherwise, the drama does not work at all. Yeah, and I, I think that buying into the kayfabe of what you're doing of the show, as long as they don't break that kayfabe, you're fine. You can allow even when they do stuff like and and you you mentioned this in the show notes, but I just watched an episode where they explicitly call it out. Uh, they narrate their own action so much and that's something they both do in such a way that makes like watching them being like i'm gonna do this now like data literally did i get that right nope you said data man (sighs) data son of a bitch (laughs) data 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 did i get it that (laughs) it's data it's data okay data literally says um i'm it seems like i'm commenting on everything i'm doing now it's like they literally like tie that into the thing so that they can explain like why they want to do the thing that they're going to be doing and what they're going to be doing. It's it, it like, it relies on this like acceptance that they're going to have to tell you they're going to do a ridiculous thing or the, the equivalent of the figure four being reversed. Like they're just rules that are rules in that world. They're, they're not even tropes. They're like core fundamentals of the way that the thing works. 
that. Yeah, in wrestling, in wrestling, you wouldn't really necessarily have an idea of what a good good wrestling works for the live crowd as well as it does for television. But sometimes you need, if you were going to see wrestling for the first time live and you'd never watched televised wrestling, so you didn't have context for what certain things are, how certain things work, and you didn't have somebody who was your friend standing next to you and saying, "Oh, that's a submission hold," yada yada yada. You need that commentary, and that's true of a lot of sports, right? Wrestling can get away with. We're going to explain to you exactly what's happening because that is part of the structure of a sports broadcast. Star Trek gets away with it because it's sort of a maritime tradition. Like Picard can say, has to, Picard doesn't do a whole lot uh, on the bridge of the Enterprise, right? His job is to make decisions and tell other people what to do. And then their job is to say, okay, I'm doing that now. So Picard is like, all right, full stop. And then the person at the front of the a person who is manning the, the, the helm says, I, sir, full stop. Oh, I am detecting yada yada is happening. It's like, well, yeah, because it's her job to tell this character what's happening because he's not looking at the sensors. She's looking at the sensors. So you get the same thing where uh, if you were just to see what was happening and you didn't have the dialogue, well, it's not the real world and the stakes and the setting and everything are different and it wouldn't make any fucking sense. So just like in wrestling, you if you don't have these characters explaining to you exactly what's happening a lot of the time, you're going to get lost because it's because it's a, it's a completely different it's, it's a completely different world. Yeah. It's based it's based on conceits that the show itself has invented. Yeah. Uh, but one's a uh, libertarian nightmare hellscape and the other one is a uh, yeah, the other one is a uh, implausible techno-socialist utopia. Yeah, basically. That's the difference. Like they they're very they're like what would happen if the rules only benefited the most powerful? And, like, even those rules are allowed to be broken if you're powerful enough. <laughs> uh, which yeah. I think is uh, why Q is so interesting. That he makes up his own... He reminds me so much of Vince McMahon, or Mr. McMahon, I should say. It's kind of crazy. And the fact that he comes up against this, as you say, implausible techno-socialist utopia, it really... It helps frame why both characters were... Why, like, it instantly was like, oh, I get why Vince McMahon works in smaller doses now better than he did when he was there like every week, but past the part where uh, Stone Cold was him and Stone Cold were hot. You know what I'm saying? Like him as this every day Machina is a problem, but as like a in every once in a while coming out and be like, Becky Lynch, you're suspended. Kofi, you're not getting the world title match. Like that kind of stuff that Q can essentially do helps to shake things up in a way that actually seems to benefit the show. Yeah. Vince McMahon is, um, you know, they, they, you know, I don't know if you've seen this. You probably have. There's a really good meme going around. that was talking about the, um, the sort of classical, um, conflicts in literature. And you have like, um, man versus man versus society, man versus God. Mm -hmm. And the man versus God one is, is stone cold versus McMahon, right? Because yeah. it's, it's like, it's like a, um, it's like one of like the million web comics of the early two thousands where the author has to become a character and then the characters have to interact with the author of the web comic. Yeah. He's a, he's a guy that who you can beat up, but because the combat is fake, he's, you know, he's going to be fine. Um, uh, Q, you actually can't beat up except for in the episode where he loses his powers, which is very uh, comical, but, He's a great foil because um, the authority of WWE is, like you said, it is a a cutthroat, edgelord, libertarian 
society, right? Where it's all about the it's all about the strongest uh, surviving. Really, is brass ring pal. Oh, wow, my voice is completely shot. yeah, yeah. I mean, goddamn man, it's all about grabbing the brass ring or whatever. But like any libertarian society, it's really just okay. The people who are already powerful are going to stay powerful because you haven't done anything to try and balance the scales. Uh, and so you philosophically kind of think, based on this philosophy, you believe the people who are at the bottom deserve to be at the bottom, otherwise they'd be you at the top, right? <laughs> Even though they haven't had any of the tools that you had, and you've denied them those tools because you don't think they should have them, because if they really deserved them, they would somehow manage to pull themselves up uh, impossibly by their own bootstraps, right? Um, Without any boots. Yeah, they've got no fucking boots. Uh, <laughs> so the um the authority of star trek is very benign and is built on this world that you really don't get to see very much of because the characters are out uh on their luxurious spaceship traveling through the stars but the um the setting of star trek is in a future where humanity has moved past has moved past its desire for more 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 in terms of material because they now have the technological means to create infinite material. They're in a post-scarcity economy. They have a dev- machine called the Replicator where they can make all the food and clothes and shelter and fucking treats that they want, right? And they've got a machine called the Holodeck where they can live out all of their fantasies and they don't really need to go out and do crazy things in the real world unless their pursuit is of knowledge because you can't play a because you can't write a novel that's going to teach you something that the writer didn't already know. For the most part, I mean, like in terms of like factual information, so they go out in pursuit of knowledge instead, because the one thing they can't just produce, they can't just go to a machine. Okay, give me, show me, uh, show me the next truth of the universe. Well, we don't have that in the data bank. You're going to have to go and find it. <laughs> uh, but Q is not part of the society. He lives on another plane of existence. He is closer to being the audience than he is to being a cast member, because the rules don't apply to him. And he more or less watches the show. Um, he kind of is falls into this principle. Uh, comics writer Grant Morrison likes to play with the idea of the reader of a comic book being a three-dimensional being looking down at a two-dimensional world. And so since we are a being in one higher plane than they are, it's, ten- it's uh, equivalent to the relationship of somebody who lives outside of time on the fourth dimension to our third. So the idea mm-hmm. is that as a reader of a comic book, I have the ability to go back in time in their world because I can turn the page forward or I can turn the page back. That's Q. Time is meaningless to him, and he indulges in hanging out on the Star Trek episode because he's got nothing else to do. But if he wanted, he could go back to the beginning of the episode and do the whole thing again. Or he can pluck a character out of it and bring them into their own past or fling them into the future and send them across time. He's just bored. Yeah, and that, which is actually something I love in the episode is that Picard tries to uh, use the – for hide and cue, Picard tries to use the the – make a recording uh captain's log and it doesn't work but he doesn't like realize it's working it's just time is completely stopped because he can't get any of the doors to open or anything like that it's like a really interesting way to establish like oh he's fucking with time in a way that it's almost dramatic irony you're like oh that seems weird that like all of this stuff is happening in such a way that like nothing's moved in space yeah because he's in control of all of it basically yeah. But what's funny about Q, and in a weird way, it's true about Vince McMahon, too. Because Don't get me wrong. I believe Vince McMahon is a very bad man. And I regret every dollar he ever got from me, and I do what I can to uh, watch his product without him getting a dime out of me. Um, 
he does actually want the characters who he torments to succeed because that earns him money, right? Like if in, if Vince McMahon thought there was more money in a black champion 10 years ago, there would have been one, mm-hmm. right? Like he's racist, but his primary, his primary allegiance uh, is to money. He sees right now that there's money in Kofi Kingston as champion. Now, as his character, he has to say that there's not. But he really knows that there is. Q fucks with Picard, wants to make him slip and doubt himself, maybe break his rules because it makes him feel superior. But especially in the later appearances in Next Generation, Q really does want Picard to grow and be happy. Vince McMahon is a cutthroat, um, selfish character who really only cares about himself and wwe while the idea of a babyface is somebody who is supposed to fight for the crowd and is supposed to fight for the honor of professional wrestling frequently a babyface gets their due when they decide i gotta stand up for myself because i've been playing the rule by the rules and I have been doing everything that I've been told to do, and it hasn't gotten me there. I have to do something for me now. I think that there is some value in that. I, I do I do think that, that if somebody were to grow up just watching professional wrestling as their primary moral watchword, they would end up very fucked up. And there are plenty of people. Hey. Uh, in, <laughs> there are plenty of people in the in, in crowds at WWE and Ring of Honor shows right now who are prime examples of that. But um Thanks, Dylan. That really <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, in Nick, no way also... is wrestling my moral arbiter at all. No, Nick, you have uh, you have uh, you have DC and Marvel comics, which are much better. Uh, so now that we've decided that we're going to tear down the institution of the WWE, I think we can uh, call it a day. Um, did you have anything you wanted to plug before we head on out? Well, um, I'm in a band called the Hell Yeah Babies. Uh, you Who, know uh, the from the I believe you listen to this show that you have heard uh, most of one of our songs probably uh, 20, 30 times. Uh, you can find us uh, on uh, Twitter at Hell Yeah Babies and on Instagram at Hell Yeah Babies and every other place that you can find music. Our album is called All the Things That You Believe, and uh, it's pretty good. We're going to be on tour in May uh, to uh, uh, mostly places in the uh, mid-Atlantic area in the, in the south, in the in – the, uh, and uh in, in, the, in the southeast so check us out at the hell yeah uh, i'm also in the middle of a project right now where i'm creating a very um uh, a, a pretty well researched and curated beginner's guide to to uh, batman comics where every other week i select a uh a batman story from the post-crisis batman con uh from the post-crisis batman canon and talk about the creators who made it and the background behind it with the goal that you could read just the Batman stories that I am picking out and in the order that I'm picking them and uh, not miss anything. That's called Gotham City Book Club. You can follow me on Twitter at Dylan Roth. That's D-Y-L-A-N-R-O-T-H. Uh, thanks again, Dylan. Uh, we are back. This is Dave and I. Say hi, Dave. Hi, Dave. <laughs> and we are normally every week we have a question I've been thinking about this entire time. And for me, the question I've been thinking about, which character person, whatever you want to call him, because I guess my choice isn't a person as much as an android, spoiler alert, uh, would make the best manager, would be the best suited to bring their guy to the top. 
bring their 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 charge to the world championship. Oh man! Or I guess the uh, intergalactic championship at this point, the federation championship. <laughs> Sounds good. We can bring the feder the term federation back. I like it. <laughs> um, I mean, I know that this is kind of like a comedy character in like the larger sense of the show, but I think Quark would make like a great manager. The uh, the kind of Ferengi everything dealer in Deep Space Nine. Um, like it just, just that idea of, uh, he, he is like, there is kind of a Bobby Heenan-ness to him. I think that maybe Bobby Heenan and the actor who developed that character were like watching some of the same like silent movies and classic vaudeville bits when they were hashing out what they were doing. You know what I mean? I think that, that Quark would be a character who would translate to wrestling because he's got a, a funny, distinct look like a manager should have. And he has kind of a funny, distinct way of thinking and talking like a manager should have. And he's someone who definitely there's different episodes in the show where he's he's doing kind of dick stuff where you're really rooting for him to, to get his comeuppance to some degree. So I think I think Quark is my choice to be a, a top-notch wrestling manager. Yeah, that's a good one. I uh, picked Data. Data. Got it this time. Yeah, motherfuckers. Yeah. Pardon my French, but I fucked that up a bunch of times. Data, uh, I think, would actually, for me, be an Alexandra York uh, the York Enterprises, for those who aren't familiar, was a group was basically Moneyball before Moneyball. And Alexandra York, who was played by Terry Runnels, who you may know as Marlena from WWF, she her character essentially calculated how to win matches. And I think that Data would be able to do that at a much higher level to the point where I don't think anybody in his stable could lose. And I think that would be a really great thing for a manager to be able to do, to guarantee victories just based on the superior intelligence and strategy given to them by their manager. I mean, it's it's classic as re- as old as wrestling, is that that idea of the manager as the, sh- the person in charge of the strategy for the performers and the idea that the performers are almost helpless without them is always something I find funny, but uh, I think data. Yeah. Got it again. <laughs> uh, would be, it definitely be my number one choice. Uh, and I, I think it's kind of unfair cause he's an Android, but uh, who cares? You know what? I'm, I'm here to win. I'm not here to make friends. You would pick the scene stealing best character. You would, you would. <laughs> well, you know what? I'm never going to be that. So I might as well. <laughs> Aww, that's sad. Uh, so did you have anything to plug this week, Dave? Oh, just follow me on Twitter as for huge uh, at Dave writes junk. That's Dave is in my name writes as in the thing that I do and junk as in the thing that is found in the trunk. Uh, definitely follow the show account on Twitter as well at H W E T W pod and make sure that you're uh, keeping your eyes peeled on our stream. You might want to hit that little subscribe button. Uh, for that upcoming preview of the pod beyond. I think once you hear that preview, you're going to be moseying over to patreon.com slash H-W-E-T-W pretty quickly. And you can check me out at the Nixer. That's T-H-E-N-1-C-K-S-D-R. And you can rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, the Google Play Store. I think I got all of them. Oh, Pocket Cast. Did you have any Pocket Cast news this week, Dave? You know what? I know that you said there's, there's maybe some new listeners this week. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to drop the teaser. I'm going to say... If you want to get the skinny on Pocket Cast, if you're unfamiliar with Pocket Cast, what you need to do is dive back into the archives and listen to as many uh, previous episodes as you possibly can. And in doing so, you will come to understand what Pocket Cast is, what it stands for, and what it can be. 
space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no one has gone before. Tongues. 